Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, The Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode, we begin our discussion about patients with bleeding disorders and specifically talking about the workup of patients with bleeding disorders in in broad strokes. But we will focus this discussion just a little bit to our first major discussion about hemophilia. I'm really excited about this one because the idea of hemophilia when I started fellowship really frightened me because I really didn't know too much about it. So we're going to break it down and give you guys the, the pearls on, first off, how do you work up a bleeding patient, which is important, and then we'll get into how to care for the hemophilia in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I'm just excited to be talking about benign heme again. You guys can't see it, but Dan actually is wearing a tie right now. He really dressed for the occasion for this episode. So, uh, listeners, just know that Dan Dan suited up just for y'all. I did. But he actually suited up to do a bone marrow biopsy. I just <laughs> want to throw this out there. This, just only Dan Housewrath would be like, I'm going to wear a tie going into my bone marrow biopsy as an attending. Yeah, admittedly, it makes about as much sense as dressing up for a podcast, but here we are. <laughs> here we are. All right, guys, let's go ahead and roll the show. Hey guys, you know, I was thinking, it's been a minute since we talked about what we're watching on Netflix currently. So quick, what what's on your what's on your viewing list right now? I'm gonna have to take us back actually to our earlier episodes. Love is Blind is back, and I'm totally back at it. It's it's a wonderful show. Uh, Nick Lachey is doing a wonderful experiment. He calls it an experiment. There's really good science involved in the show. And I, I just couldn't recommend it more for some mindless television. So that sounds pretty awesome. I, I admit I didn't pick up on that wreck last time. So maybe I'll have to add that to our list too. Logan and I have just been on our usual or we're, we're a little bit heavier in rotation with the X-Files right now, just because, you know, it's, it's the season for, for spooky things, but uh, yeah, we're not, we're not the most up to date. I like that. It's, it's really appropriate. It's, it's an appropriate show for the times right now, getting close to Halloween. I'm gonna have to throw Love Is Blind to get into that into that hat. That's uh, currently what I was binging. Actually, just what I was just watching before we got on here to record, which is why I was running a little bit late. But it's just it is fantastic. I just can't look away. So, listeners, high yeah, quality very television. high quality television. Really recommend that you check it out. It's pretty awesome. But with that being said, I thought that maybe we could talk about a case that I saw on our heme consult service um, a few weeks ago, actually. And I think it's going to lead to a good discussion. So if you guys are are okay with switching things up a little bit and talking a little bit more about a heme case, I've certainly got one for you. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So guys, when I was on the other day and I saw this patient that we got a new consult for in the ER, he was a 25-year-old male who had come to the ER with some epistaxis and back pain. Unfortunately, it turns out that this gentleman had been drinking a little bit, so he was intoxicated. So the history is a little bit iffy, but he reports that he has a, quote, bleeding problem, but he wasn't really sure what type. He tried to get a hold of his mom, who he said knew, but he couldn't get a hold of her. And so, you know, the ER was trying to figure out what to do and where to go from here. 
I think this is a classic scenario, weirdly enough, that you have a patient come in, and so it sometimes is not like this, where oftentimes patients who have hemophilia, which we will be talking about, will tell you, hey, I have a diagnosis of hemophilia, and they know about it. But there will be times when the diagnosis is unclear, or a patient will say that I think I have hemophilia or some other bleeding disorder, and it's important to figure out how to approach this situation. Yeah, and you know, clinical history is always very, very important whenever it comes to working up bleeding, potential bleeding disorders or known bleeding disorders. And no matter how, well, I want to say no matter how intoxicated a patient is, but even when your patient is moderately intoxicated, you can usually still get some meaningful information from them. So I think we should go through uh, how to talk to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. So, so speaking of the history, what are some things that you guys would recommend we consider asking our patients if they come in for something like this and you're suspecting some sort of bleeding history? So so I think before we get into the questions that we'll ask on the history, I want to set some ground rules up for what to know to ask these patients when you're getting a bleeding history. The first thing is that you need to ask the patient if the bleeding was spontaneous or provoked by some sort of injury or anatomical abnormality, right? So you're asking, when we go through this, we're going to be asking about bleeding questions, but we want to know, was this spontaneous or provoked? Or in some cases, was there some anatomical abnormality, like a vascular malformation in the colon, and that's causing their GI bleeding, for example. So those are critical. The second thing is, Always ask, for that bleeding episode, did the patient require a transfusion or a procedure to stop the bleeding? And that's huge because many of these patients with true bleeding disorders will have needed some form of a procedure to stop their bleeding, whether that's cauterization or something more intensive. So next, let's go through a simple method for getting the bleeding history. And we like to call this the fellow on call bleeding history assessment. And we'll give you some more validated tools, but this is the way we like to think about it. So I would say it's five steps. Step one, mucosal bleeding. So what this means is ask about any mucosal surface in the body if they bled from that. And what I mean by that, you just think about it. Well, inside the nose, are they having epistaxis? And you're always asking again, did you need cauterization if they had recurrent epistaxis in the past? Then let's go down to the mouth, gum bleeding, bleeding with dental extractions or tooth bleeding, whether they had their wisdom tooth surgery, did they have excessive bleeding? Then go down to the GI tract, any melanoma or hematochesia, any major history of G- recurrent GI bleeding. And again, you're asking, was there a vascular malformation or, or some other predisposition? Urinary tract has mucosa. Is there hematuria? And in women, you always want to ask about menorrhagia or excessive postpartum bleeding in some of these, these patients who may have had childbirth in the past. And again, you're asking, you're quantifying how much bleeding there is. How much are they bleeding? Did they need a transfusion? How many pads are they going through? Things like that. So any mucosal surface. So think about that from the nose all the way down. So think nose, mouth, GI tract, urinary system. And then lastly, thinking about something like menorrhagia or excessive postpartum bleeding. The step two, next thing is skin. And this is pretty simple. Think, Think about bruising. Very simply, do a skin exam, look for bluesing, and you want to look for something like a petechial rash because you also want to make sure, does this patient just have low platelets? And that's just an important thing to to look out for. Dan will talk to us later about why it's important to look for telangiectasias when he summarizes uh, the findings in our patient. But one thing you might want to look in the skin for is telangiectasias because there's a rare inherited syndrome that where you have telangiectasias and have a bleeding predisposition. 
So we talked about the mucosa. We talked about the skin. Number three is what we like to call ortho bleeding. When we think about ortho, I think about muscles and joints. So what we're talking about here is spontaneous joint bleeding or spontaneous muscle hematoma, or in some cases, a minor injury where the patient may have had a very large bleed into a joint or a muscle. And that's critical. When we think about Unlike the other two categories, the skin and the mucosa, if a patient has this ortho-bleeding category, we're thinking of a severe factor deficiency, whether that's inherited or an acquired hemophilia. Next, step four, prior surgical and family history. So you want to ask these patients, did you have a surgery before and have excessive bleeding afterwards? If they didn't, then an inherited bleeding syndrome is less likely the cause of, of what's going on with that patient at this current moment. doesn't rule it out, but it makes it a little bit less likely. So no bleeding after some form of procedure is important. And the family history is critical. We want to ask these patients, do they have a bleeding phenotype in the family? Hemophilias are, are X-linked, so think about male relatives. But thing, other forms of inherited bleeding disorders, when we think about platelet dysfunctions and von Willebrands, are autosomal inherited. So it's just important to get a good family history. But if there's lots of males in the family, that tips your head to think about hemophilia. And the last thing is medications. Any over-the-counter supplement or some medications can predispose a patient to bleeding. And Think about GNC supplements, anything they're getting off the internet, because those can cause a patient to have a tendency to bleed. So in summary, mucosal surfaces, skin, orthobleeding, and remember if you have orthobleeding, joints, or muscles, think about a hemophilia or a severe factor deficiency. Remember that surgical family history is the fourth step, and step number five is the meds. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic summary. And always uh, remembering to ask about the chronicity of this. Is this something that's been with the patient lifelong or is it something that developed in the recent past that can maybe help you point towards either an inherited versus an acquired disorder of bleeding? And, uh, and yeah, just being thorough and systematic. Uh, I think that was a great review. And, you know, one of the things that I have learned on this heme rotation recently, especially in the outpatient setting, is that you can use validated tools to also help us essentially provide objective numbers to capture someone's subjective bleeding history. And so we'll put a, a link to this in our show notes, but the ISTH BAT or the bleeding assessment tool is fantastic. If you have a high clinical index of suspicion that someone has a bleeding disorder, even if they score low, you're probably still going to work them up. But even if someone's pretest probability is very high, you can use the BAT as also a way to uh, measure their response to treatment. So it's a, it's a great thing to definitely administer to your patients when you first meet them. And like I said, we'll, we'll put that in our show notes. You don't have to remember any of that. And, and to be honest, after Vivek listed off that awesome five-step approach to uh, taking the history, a lot of that is encompassed in that, in that BAT. So if you're asking all those right questions, it'll be a breeze for you to, to go right through that assessment tool. Yeah, it's, it's a great screening tool. And it's something I always go back to when I forget what questions to ask. But just remember, mucosa, skin, ortho bleeding, family history, surgical history, meds. Awesome. So Vivek, you mentioned a little bit about the exam. So, so Dan, what sorts of things are you particularly paying attention to when you examine this patient, especially in someone like this gentleman that maybe can't give you as much of that subjective component to the history? Yeah, the physical exam is obviously important whenever you're working a patient up, but I think it's, it's even more important here uh, when you're thinking about a potential bleeding disorder. I'm usually looking for three specific things whenever uh, I'm 
doing a focused physical exam for a potential bleeding disorder patient. I want to be looking for predisposing factors to bleed, some like, like Viva alluded to, any anatomic issue that's potentially causing this bleeding. I want to give myself an idea of the severity of a person's bleeding issue, and I want to look for potential mimics of bleeding disorders or evidence of mimics. And so going through those, the first one is fairly obvious. You look at the sources of, of any active bleeding and you look to see, you know, is there an obvious cause for this? If somebody's bleeding from their tooth, is there like a big chunk of food stuck in their gum that's maybe causing this bleeding? Or if someone's having bleeding from one of their one of their nostrils, you ask them, okay, well, when you've had nosebleeds in the past, is it always from this same side? And either doing an exam yourself or, or asking colleagues in ENT or another specialty to, uh, to do a thorough exam of the nasal mucosa and look for uh, a polyp or some other source for bleeding. As far as severity, you know, of course, keeping in mind your patient's, preserving your patient's modesty, you don't want to be doing this in, in the middle of a busy emergency room hallway or anything like that. Um, but once you are able to examine the patient in a more private setting, really exposing uh, a majority of their skin surface area to look for bruising, tracking bruising, especially that might speak to a larger bleed, say in the flank or in the thigh, and, and trying to give yourself an idea of how, how bad is this problem is if the person's looks like they were just in a car accident and they have no history of trauma, you know, that that could be a pretty severe problem if they're just diffusely bruised. Uh, whereas if it's just one or two sites of bleeding, you may be thinking, well, this is maybe not quite as severe as it otherwise could be. Lastly, looking for mimics. Mostly what I'm talking about here are other problems that a patient might have independent of their clotting cascades. So maybe they have a perfectly normal clotting system, but have some other problem that's that's setting them up for having easy bleeding. Usually that's things like problems with their connective tissue. So folks with scurvy, classically, bruise really, really easily just because they aren't able to generate normal collagen. Things to look for there, again, diffuse bruising in areas with some contact, but like minimal contact. So if somebody has like a pendant necklace and there's bruising all underneath of that or bruising right where their seatbelt normally is without any history of trauma, things like that. And severe hypertrophy of the gums, those can point you towards a vitamin C deficiency or scurvy. And looking for telangiectasias, so little red spots, essentially, or little tangles of abnormal blood vessels on the lips, tongue, and fingertips can point you towards a diagnosis of HHT. It used to be called Osler-Weber-Rendau syndrome, or uh, now hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. That disorder causes the formation of abnormal blood vessels throughout the body and can really look like a bleeding disorder. These, these abnormal vessels bleed very easily. Nasal Bleeding is, is really a, a, a hallmark of the condition. It's, it's the most common feature of it. But GI bleeding in later stages or phases of the disease uh, is also very common. So just looking for these mimics is very important too. So assess the source, assess for severity, and look for mimics. Those are the things you want to focus on. Yeah, so so I, I, I mean, I think that we've developed a really nice framework for the initial assessment. And, you know, I think a lot of this though, it sounds like is going to be dependent on some of the additional workup that we do. So some of the blood work that we do. And of course you want to be sending this when there's any uncertainty, especially in patients that have high likelihoods of, of a bleeding disorder. So in general, what is going to be the things that we should be sending at least at the time of that initial consult or when we see that patient for the first time in the office? 
So I think I'm going to go through just the basic workup for somebody who you suspect has a bleeding disorder. Remember, the history and the exam Dan talked about is going to be critical in determining whether you need to really be thinking about a bleeding disorder or not. But in general, your first pass workup should include a CBC with peripheral smear. The CBC is critical because you're looking for low platelets. When we think about achieving hemostasis, you need platelets and you need clotting factors. And if you have a deficiency in platelets, you're not going to form your clot. If you have a deficiency in your clotting factors, you're not going to form your clot. Or if you have abnormal functioning of either platelets or clotting factors, you're not going to form your clot. And so the CBC will tell us, are the platelets are low? I always get a smear with that. We talked about in previous episodes how important a smear is. And you're going to look for things like platelet clumping or something like schistocytes if you're worried about the prototypical bleeding disorder, which is DIC, where you've consumed all of your coagulation factors and your platelets, and now the patient with severe DIC, you might see them oozing from their mucosal surfaces or their IV lines and things like that. So again, CBC with that smear is critical for those reasons. Next, we always get a CMP. When we think about issues with coagulation. There's coagulopathy of liver disease, so you want to assess the liver with that CMP. And in rare cases, you can have platelet dysfunctional bleeding due to uremia. So somebody with bad renal disease and they have very, very high BUN, you can run into problems with some mucosal type bleeding due to platelet dysfunction from uremia. So we talked about the CBC with smear, the CMP. And now we're getting to the critical part for coags. And these are the coagulation studies. And what we're talking about here is that prothrombin time, the PT, INR, the PTT, and fibrinogen. Anytime you're getting the PT and PTT, in general, we always want to throw on that fibrinogen when we're thinking about a first pass looking at the coagulation cascade. Because without fibrinogen, you can't form your fibrin meshwork that stabilizes the clot. So you have all of these coag factors, which the PTT assess, the PT assesses, the coagulation cascade, but then the end game is making fibrin meshworks to support the clot, and you need fibrinogen to do that. So that's why it's important to always get the fibrinogen in this workup. And lastly, what you may see is some patients on your first pass workup, if you have a high suspicion, is we'll send off a von Willebrand panel. We're going to talk about that in a later episode. But the big things that, that we outlined are the CBC smear, the CMP, and the coagulation studies, which is the PT, PTT, and fibrinogen. Luckily, we had done just that. And so, you know, at the time, really quickly, the things that we got back, so we had a CBC that was notable for a hemoglobin of 8.5. He did have a low MCV of 78, and he had a platelet count of 155. He had a CMP was relatively unremarkable, thankfully, but his PT was normal. His PTT was elevated. It was 68 seconds. Um, and his fibrinogen was normal. At Rouleau University, uh, it takes a little while for the von Willebrand's panel to come back as it does at probably most places. So we didn't have that information right off the bat. So, you know, as far as we can tell, this patient has unfortunately uh, an element of microcytic anemia, normal platelets, but abnormal PTT uh, with an elevated value at 68 seconds. So where do we go from here? So we have this abnormally elevated PTT, and you really do need to follow up that value with some additional testing. The things that can cause this to be elevated, you know, ignoring the possibility of a medication that might be influencing this, we're pretty sure this guy is not on a heparin infusion if we've done our physical exam on him thoroughly enough. 
we know that that means one of two things. There's either a clotting factor missing or there's something inhibiting the assay or one of the clotting factors in his bloodstream, something like an, an autoantibody that's interfering with the function of a clotting protein or interfering with the assay itself. The way to separate out those two possibilities, you know, a missing factor or an interfering substance, is by doing a mixing study. And so what a mixing study is, is you take normal plasma that's uh, got a normal amount of all the clotting factors and a, as a result, a normal PTT value when you run that assay on this plasma. And you have the patient's plasma, which in this case we know has an abnormally elevated PTT. And you mix the two together, and then you rerun the PTT assay on that. And you, you check the, the value of that assay at zero hours, so right after mixing, at one hour after mixing, and two hours after mixing. If there's a factor deficiency, if this patient's PTT was elevated just because he's missing something, when you do that mix, you're replacing the factor that was missing. So that, that value should normalize. It doesn't take a lot of factor to result in normal value. So you know having 50% normal plasma and 50% patient plasma should be more than enough to replace whatever factor was missing and result in a normalization of that PTT. Now, if there's an inhibitor present, you're going to end up with a test that does not correct when you mix that normal plasma in with the patient's plasma. And that's because whatever is in that patient's plasma that's inhibiting their own enzymes from functioning, it's also going to inhibit the normal enzymes in the pooled normal plasma that you mix in. Now, the results, the reason we check at multiple time points, zero hours, one hour, and two hours, is because sometimes on immediately mixing in that normal plasma, there is some degree of correction. But you know, at later time points, we see that the assay becomes abnormal again. That's a pattern you can see even if, when there's an inhibitor present. So that's why we don't just satisfy ourselves that the mixing study shows a relatively normal PTT right after mixing. But as long as that value is or becomes an abnormal reading on the PTT with mixing, we know that we're in inhibitor territory and we're not just dealing with uh, the absence of an essential clotting factor. So after you do that assay, sort of thinking in parallel here a lot of the time, you still need to figure out what was missing. If it's an inhibitor, you know, you need to figure out which of those enzymes is being inhibited, which of the clotting factors is being inhibited. And even if the mixing study corrects, suggesting just a factor deficiency, well, you still want to know what's deficient. So doing individual factor levels is also very important. And this is where it's key to know what your own institution's lab does, what their normal practice is with these mixing studies. At Rouleau, our, our lab is fantastic, and they do all this reflex testing once you order the mixing study as a part of an abnormal APTT workup package that they have at our lab. But if that's not available, you'll also need to order individual factor activity levels. These are functional assays, much like the PTT is a functional clotting assay. And so what they give you is a percentage of normal activity. So say we're sending a factor eight activity level. It's a functional assay looking at the function of the factor eight protein in, in forming a blood clot. And it'll report as a percent, so like 100% of normal or 50% of normal or 20% of normal. Our normal range is between 50 and 150. So anything below 50 puts you in the category of a, of a deficiency in that factor. And in a case like this, where the PTT is abnormal, I'd want to be thinking about the factors that are related to that side of the clotting cascade, to the intrinsic pathway of the clotting cascade. And so in this case, it's actually a little important to, to understand that cascade when you're thinking about what test to order. 
Dan, that was an awesome explanation because I really struggled with the concept of a mixing study and the idea of, you know, I, I just never really got it. And, you know, I might, maybe this is really rudimentary. And so I apologize to our listeners if they already know this, but it wasn't until this case that I actually realized that like what a PT and a PTT actually is. They are literally just measuring the amount of time it takes to form a clot. And so all these different proteins that we try to memorize for our, our USMLE exams are players in this cascade on individual arms of the coagulation cascade. And all this person is, I mean, not exactly doing, but in theory, your, your technician is measuring the amount of time it takes from the start of that reaction to the time a clot is formed. And that's why they're called times. That's why the, the, the word time is in there. And it makes so much more sense when you think about it like that, that there's something either missing or something impairing the amount of rather the function of that pathway. And that's why that time is elevated. And I think if you think about it like that, the idea of the mixing study actually makes a lot more sense too. So, so thanks for, so thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, Dan, that, that was awesome and totally agree with what Ronick said. And I think the big thing here is that if you have an isolated PTT abnormality or PT abnormality, you should always think in your head, I need to run that mixing study because you need to know, and obviously we're not talking about the cases where obviously the patient's on warfarin or they are on a heparin drip. We're talking about cases where the patient shouldn't have an elevated coag abnormality. The mixing study will tell you, do I have a deficiency in one of these factors or is there an antibody that's inhibiting the function of one of these factors? And like Dan said, the bottom line is that we need to then test for specific factor activity levels after the mixing study comes back. And you might be asking yourself, which factor level should I be sending off for, depending on whether I do a PTT mixing study or a PT mixing study? And what we recommend, and this is our strongest recommendation for the fellow on call for the COAG cascade, is that everybody goes to the How I Teach the Coagulation Cascade by Dr. Alice Ma from UNC. She has a PowerPoint that is just wonderful, and she explains how to think about this in an easy way, probably the best I've ever seen. And we're going to put a link to that in our show notes, but I'll summarize very quickly. When we think about forming a clot, you think about either I'm going through the extrinsic pathway or the intrinsic pathway. Either one of those will then activate a common pathway, which will ultimately lead to a fibrin clot formation. So you have extrinsic activating common pathway or intrinsic activating a common pathway. Extrinsic is lucky number seven. Really just think about it's less steps and factor seven is involved. So factor seven drives down clot through the common pathway. The intrinsic pathway is a little more complicated uh, Dr. Ma does a really good job explaining a good mnemonic for that, but that's where we're thinking about things like factor eight, factor nine, and factor 11. And if you look at that, you'll understand why those are the ones that are important. And then lastly, we have this common pathway. And you may be wondering, well, how do I know what's in the common pathway? So I know lucky number seven is extrinsic. The common pathway is any dollar bill amount. So what we mean by that is one, two, remember there's a $2 bill, five, and 10. So one, two, five, and 10 are the common pathway. Lucky number seven is the extrinsic pathway. And then everything else is the intrinsic pathway. Look at that thing by Dr. Alice Ma, but just to know, we think about 
in general, factors eight, nine, and eleven for the for the PTT pathway being important. Always think about factor seven for the PT pathway, and the common pathway are those dollar bills one, two, five, and ten. That was that was awesome. Yeah, we will definitely include that article. is is quite clutch. So you know, I just wanted to to round out this discussion. We did all of these things. And again, we were able to get his mixing studies and activity assays back pretty quickly. His mixing study did correct. So suggesting he was missing a factor. And when we did the activity assays, it was his factor eight that was low. It was at 38% suggesting that he may in fact have had hemophilia. And we'll talk more about that in a future episode as to what that number means and how we go about addressing it. But this does suggest that he had not an inhibitor present, but truly a deficiency in the production of one of his coagulation factors. All right, guys. So, you know, I think we should probably close out here. I think that was a lot of really good information for our listeners to digest. And perhaps next week we can talk a little bit more about the management of this patient now that we know and confirmed that he has hemophilia, specifically hemophilia A, that is a factor eight deficiency. Sound good? Sounds great. I'm excited to get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the case. Well, that wraps up another great episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.